Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I really believe that, and I think you do too. Because that's true then, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we are as we left off in Hebrews chapter 2 last week. I need to let you know that of all the updates we've been doing in our sound system, maybe the most important is that uh, somebody in the powers to be in the deep hallways of power at Crosspoint decided to buy me an anti-fatigue mat that I could stand on, so I'm feeling good. I feel about half an inch taller, too. Uh, There are passages in the Bible that sort of stand out in their usefulness, and this is one of them. One of the reasons why our military is as effective as it is, and I'm biased because I served on our military and we have a church full of military people, even Navy people, is because we can operate at night. We can fight in the darkness. And this text this morning is kind of like a night vision goggle. It's it's, it's something that will help us see at night. That's that's the idea I want to orient you to as we begin. Now, here's the flow. We're going to work through this text. I want you to see a contrast that the preacher of Hebrews is making in this text. He wants us to see something that if we can see, and if we can embrace this, and if we can understand it, and if we can learn to live in it and apply it, it will do wonders for our ability to navigate through the darkness of life. And then if we have time, I want us to draw out a few truths, and then we're going to see a sister, a new member of the church that's joining tonight, be baptized and see the gospel proclaimed through water baptism. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this dear couple that is with us this morning that is going to a place where uh, the gospel is closed, that needs to hear the good news of the gospel that we so freely preach. Thank you for our partnership with them. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word freely, not underground, but above ground. Thank you for the kindness that you've showed us as a people. May we not waste it, take it for granted, squander it, May we lean forward into the glory of God and may you make us more like Christ as a result of our time. May we, as a result of our time in this text, be able to see clearly, more clearly in the dark. And if there's any friends that are here today that don't know Jesus, Lord, by your kindness, would you cause them, would you give them the thing that you require? Would you give them a new heart so that they can see Jesus and be saved? Lord, help me help these people for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read our text, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Remember, the the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ over the Old Covenant, over angels, over Moses, over the priesthood, over the law. The the context is that this, this early group of Christians who were primarily ethnically Jews, that's why it's called Hebrews, they're early converts to Christ, mostly ethnic Jews, probably living in Rome, are because of increasing persecution in their Context were, were, were threatening. They were sort of teetering on the edge of possibly going back to Judaism, which was recognized by the Roman Empire. 
and was easier for them to live in, and they're being persecuted for their new faith in Christ. And so the writer is wanting them to hold fast to Christ. He's wanting them to endure, to draw near to Christ. And he's wanting to show them that he's better than anything that they might be tempted to go back to. So with that, he's just made an argument that Christ is better than angels. And now we pick up in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes Psalm 8 here that we've already read, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Okay, remember the context, as I've just told you, is he's wanting to show them that Christ is superior to angels. That was basically the bulk of chapter 1. And in the preceding four verses, the preacher of Hebrews, and I like that word preacher, because remember, Hebrews more than a letter is actually one long sermon. And so it's, it's, I think it's better to refer to the author of Hebrews. I think it's more appropriate to call him the preacher of Hebrews. And he makes this point in the first four verses of chapter 2. Hey, don't drift. Don't go back. Don't neglect this great salvation. This Jesus, who is so much better than these heavenly beings, don't neglect. And one of the themes of Hebrews, one of the anchors of Hebrews, maybe you could even say the main preacher point of Hebrews is this warning to not drift, to not drift away from Christ. And this war- these warnings, warning passages, come up again and again in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and 3 and 6 and 10. And this is the first one we encountered that we looked at last week. And now he's returning back to his argument. He's wanting to show us, he's wanting to prove to us from the logic of the scriptures, the superiority of Christ. So let's just work our way through this text and make sure we understand what he is saying. So verse 5, he says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. I want you to just notice he's continuing his line of argumentation that we dug into in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, where he was arguing for the superiority of Christ over angels. Now, why would he do that? Just by way of reminder, it's not so much, I don't think, that there was this strange fascination with angels going on in the church there in Rome, although that may have been the case on some level. But he's making the point when he's talking about angels, because angels oftentimes in the scriptures, especially like in Galatians chapter 3 and other places, they are mentioned by Paul as the mediators of the old covenant. They're the ones that mediated the law to Moses. And so in a first century Jewish mind, 
when the writer of Hebrews is talking about Christ is better than the angels, it's a kind of summary. Part of the point, I think the major part of the point, is he's setting them up for this argument that goes all the way through Hebrews is that Christ is better than the old covenant. That's the point that he's making there. But notice what he says here. He's going to tell us some deep things about who Christ is. And he says of this Christ that God subjected the world to come to him. Now, that's just kind of a tip that we're going to get into in the coming weeks, the world to come. We need to understand this. I think this is the first expression in Hebrews of a tension that we'll see all throughout Hebrews, especially when we get into Hebrews chapter 10, 11, and 12 someday. And it exists all throughout the New Testament, and it's this tension of this age and the age to come. It tells us something about this life when we think about it, when the writer, the preacher of Hebrews, is saying that the world to come is subjected. Now, clearly, there are many Bible verses, and we're going to think about them today, that talk about how all things, even now and always have been, subjected to God, subjected to Christ, subjected to our triune Lord. But in another sense, because of the fall, we see this world that seems to not be subjected to him. And there is going to be this final, full subjection of all things to Christ. So I just want us to notice, and this is kind of an unashamed plug for our Wednesday night series. I want you to notice this eschatological. There's a word for you. That word and, and, and $14 will get you a bad cup of coffee at Starbucks. All this word eschatology means, did you get that joke? I think coffee is ridiculously overpriced. <laughs> anyway, I, eschatological, end times, the last things. I don't want you to reserve eschatology as a kind of strange area of theological interest but I want you to see it as the tenor, it's the culture, it's the, it's the air of the New Testament, that we are going somewhere, that this life is not all that there is to it. And here we see it's tipped off. He's this world to come. So come, come to Wednesdays and, 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 and let's think about what the Bible says about that. Let's pick back up in verse 6. Now, here's what the author is going to do. The preacher of Hebrews, who at least to us is anonymous, we talked about that in the first week, He's going now to use Psalm 8 that Chris read for our call to worship. And he's going to make a point about Psalm 8 that is going to become the basis of what he's wanting to say to us here in these verses. So he says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. So that doesn't mean that the writer, by the way, it doesn't mean that the writer of Hebrews doesn't remember where the reference was. It's not like, oh, I can't remember because he's going to actually quote it verbatim. But I think what he's trying to do, I think that's intended by the Lord because he's not wanting to necessarily draw any attention to David or, or the author of the psalm. He's wanting to show us that it's the Holy Spirit. Just like, remember what we talked about in the first week in Hebrews chapter 1, that there's a reason why I think we don't know specifically who the author of Hebrews is, even though we know the author of all of the other books of the New Testament. I think that's intended by the Lord to help us to remember that even behind the human authors, it's one divine author that writes scripture and we can trust God's word. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here when he says it's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man? And listen to these words. He's quoting a middle part of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while 
lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, here's what I want you to see. The preacher is clearly using Psalm 8 to make a point, and it's fascinating how he does it. Here's the question that I want us to wrestle with here. Who is Psalm 8 about? Who's he talking about? Who's, who's David, I think the author of Psalm 8, who is he writing Psalm 8 about when he refers to man? Is he talking about mankind or is he talking about Christ? Well, I think the answer, as we will delve into, I think that will hopefully become obvious to us, is that I think it's both. Psalm 8, when it was written, is first a praise to God about his work of creation. So let's go back. Let's just look at Psalm 8. Chris, Chris McGuire read it for us at the beginning of the service. But I just want us to understand afresh the flow, the context of Psalm 8. It's a short psalm to make sure we understand the point that the preacher of Hebrews is making when he uses this psalm in Hebrews chapter 2. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And there's just, I don't have time to get into this, but there's just a glorious echo of what's going on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the glory of creation. And then what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Who is the foe of God? The enemy, Satan. And who ultimately will destroy Satan is the baby, the Christ child who comes in his humility, which is what I think this whole chapter is about. And then he says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man? Verse 4. What is man? And this David, here thousands of years before Christ, I think in his context, clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but not yet fully realizing all that he's writing about in a sense, has this meditation in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him, I think David in his context of writing Psalm 8 is talking about mankind. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, meaning angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. So that's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God says through Moses, when he's narrating the creation of mankind, he's saying to Adam and Eve that I will give you, I will, I will, you take dominion over the fish of the sea, dominion over the land, dominion over the earth. And so mankind in his original state is meant to rule, to be vice regents in a sense, to be stewards, to be God's authority, to bear his image on earth. And this is what David is meditating on here in verse five. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him, Adam and Eve and their progeny, dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put, this is a stunning statement, you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
in its original writing, the point I'm making is that Psalm 8 is a meditation of the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in man in his place in God's created design. Now, we could stop here for just a moment and settle down on a few glorious and important truths. Uh, we don't have time to do much of that, but here's just a few. I just want us to notice God's intention in the image of man. It's, it's stunning how glorious we as people are. C.S. Lewis has this uh, wonderful little paragraph in some book. I'm not sure. I think maybe it's The Weight of Glory. And he talks about how there are no ordinary people. We are all made, even fallen people, even people that are dead in their sins are still, in some degree, bear the image of God. This means, one sort of extrapolation of this is that, friends, people are important. People are worthy of dignity. Even the most difficult, the most contemptuous, the most hard-to-love people are important and worthy of dignity, maybe even God's justice at times, but they are worthy of of our attention, and they're worthy of us giving the gospel to them because God saves wicked people because all of us at one point in our lives are wicked people. It just also, as we think about just uh, our, our nation, and you think about how he's ordained babies to give praise to God, and you think about the beauty of the creation of a person, it just makes our hearts mourn about what our nation has done with over 60 million children that we have aborted. And it's, this is just, when you re we read verses like this, if you're maybe a young person that's grown up in this culture and you've been discipled by social media and liberal theological voices, don't buy into the lie that what is going on in the womb at the moment of conception is not a human being. It is, dear ones. And what exists the moment of conception is glorious. And it's, it's, it's a human being that God is, think about this, is mindful of. And think not only about children, think about your own life. Think about maybe if you feel so distant from the Lord, this is just a wonderful meditation. Think about Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? He's mindful of you, friends. Psalm 139, this is a beautiful meditation that just goes with Psalm 8, where David says, where can I go from your spirit? I can go down to the depths of the sea, you're there. I can ascend to the highest heights, you're there. I, there's nowhere I can go that you're not with me. He says that you've ordained all of my days before one of them came to be. And if I were to number your thoughts towards me, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Think about that. Line up every little speck of sand on every little beach in the world and God's thoughts for every one of his people outnumbers them. Friends, you can lose yourself for a day in glorious meditation on the mindfulness of God for you. Oh, praise God for that. But that's not even the point I want to make. So let's, let's get back to the text. But there's a problem, see? There's a problem. Because God has made man, he's made him a little lower than the angels, he's crowned him with glory and honor, he's put, this is, this is stunning, he's put everything in subjection under his feet. So Psalm 8, in its original context, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through David, applies first to us. But there's a problem. We clearly, in the garden, in Adam, 
have lost that glory. We've lost that authority. We, we are like the commander who has been relieved of his duty. We've been stripped of our rank. The sin that we have all participated in, that we all inherit by our nature as humans, because we're all descendants of Adam, and by our own individual choices, has excommunicated us. It's caused humanity in his natural state, and by his own individual decision, it's caused mankind to be separated from God, to lose the privileges. And so what is said about mankind in Psalm 8 is no longer possible because of the fall. So there's a dilemma. There's a dilemma. How will man assume this role that God has intended for him in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, meditated on by David even after the fall in Psalm 8, that eventually is going to be true of us in the world to come. How will that happen? And that's where the turn takes place in this text. Because the preacher of Hebrews is going to take Psalm 8, written in its original context, applying to mankind, and he's going to apply it to the one true man, Christ, who is the one who will fulfill this for us. So that's what he does. He takes this turn. Verse 8. Actually, the second part of verse 8, verse B. Now, and he does this turn almost, almost just right under our noses. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In verse 9, he's going to now... He's going to clear up for us that he's made a transition. He's applying Psalm 8, written by David, about us. And he's going to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, show us that Psalm 8 was a shadow that's written about mankind that's actually about truly the man to come, Jesus. So he's saying here in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, here it is, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So do you see what the writer, the preacher of Hebrews has done? He's taken this, this psalm written about us that we know instinctively and by our experience and by the Bible and just by the world around us, we know that we've lost what Psalm 8 has said about us, and he applies it now to Christ. So let's look again at the second half of verse 8. He says about Jesus, and we know he's talking about Jesus because he tells us that in verse 9. He's put everything in subjection to him. He's left nothing outside of his control. Now that's a sweeping and comprehensive statement. Nothing, not just will be, not just the world to come, not just someday, but even now he has put, he has left, past tense, nothing outside of his control. But here's the key word. Here's the key word in the last part of verse 8. At present... If you can see this last sentence, if we can understand what this last half of eight is saying, it will, it will help us see in the dark. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's saying everything is, but everything, we don't see it that way yet. This explains so much. This is right in line with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul says in that beautiful chapter on the resurrection. And I don't have time to take you through the whole logic of 1 Corinthians 15, but it's glorious. I think we should meditate on it. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 
I think, is the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying that it's real and it's in the flesh. And he's saying that if Jesus didn't really resurrect in the flesh and ascend to heaven, then everything that we're doing here is, is, is pitiful. It's in vain. We're still in our sins. And the point that he's making in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus is presently reigning in heaven as the resurrected king, and that's happening now. But part of what's also going on there in Jesus' victorious resurrection in the flesh is it's a down, pause, down deposit. It's a first fruits. It's proving to us that just as Jesus rose from the dead, he's been resurrected in glory because we are in him, we too will be resurrected with Jesus. That's the whole point of verse chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But here's this logic. I want you to see this. Paul tags on to what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here, and he gives us, he invites us into this tension of the words, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, even though everything is. 1 Corinthians 15. I know I've said 1 Corinthians 15 a hundred times, so I'll read it now. I'll read it. You're like, okay, read it, Brad. Read it. Verse 25. For he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. So notice the logic of that verse. He, He must reign, so that means he is reigning. He's reigning right now. There's never been a time when Jesus is not reigning. He's reigning right now. But apparently, there's at least a temporary aspect to his reign where there are still enemies doing their work, and he is fighting against them, moving towards a time, a certain time, when he will put all of them under his feet. Friends, we are living in the until. That's the age we're living in, where he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Verse 28, when, this time in the future, when all things are subjected to him, even though they already are. See, do you understand this tension? When all things are subjected to him, meaning that finality, when all of his enemies are under his feet, then the son of man himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. In other words, when Christ's battle through his people and the word and the spirit moving through the church through the ages is finally complete and Jesus returns, then, then God will be, he will be with us all and all. Do you see that tension? Verse 9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I want you to see the contrast here. I want you to see, do you notice the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9? Notice what he says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But in verse 9, But we see him, meaning Jesus, who for a little while, meaning his incarnation, was made lower than the angels. And he's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 
So the, the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is wanting us to see, he's wanting us to consider this world. So think about it in the context. Hebrew Christian in the first century, this persecution that you're facing, I know it just seems like it's out of control. This world seems like it is not under Christ's reign. It doesn't seem like everything's under subjection to him. Don't stare at that too long. Look to him. We understand this. Let's, we, we realize this is reality. But look to him is what the writer of Hebrews is telling the people as they endure the difficulty of persecution. And the word is to us as well. We do not see everything in subjection to him at present. This explains so much. Even just within this little congregation in west central Georgia. We... We, we, we know this, this reality. We see people that are sick. We see relationships that are racked with sin. We see children. We see suffering from disease. We see cancer diagnoses. We see all sorts of pain in just this group of several hundred people. And we're living in that end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And I love the honesty of the Bible that admits that. This is where we live, friends. This is where we live. And not only out there, I'm not just talking about the circumstances of life, but friends, let's get personal. I see it in my own heart. We see it in our own lives. I, 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 oh, Lord, I know who you are. I've been walking with you for years now, but I still, in my heart, I do not yet see Lord, how long, oh Lord, will I wrestle with this thing? And the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging the reality of that, but he turns our attention quickly to Christ, away from yourself and to Christ. But we see him. We see him. What does verse 9 say? Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? It means that God the Son became a man. That little while is referring to his incarnation, his humility, his becoming a man, becoming like us, namely Jesus. Now the second half of verse 9 is fascinating. Listen to this. Crowned with glory and honor. And we would all agree with that. We all, I think, instinctively just sense that God the Son is crowned with glory and honor. That's an obvious Christian confession. If you, if you have any familiarity with, with the Bible, we know that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. But notice the basis of why the writer is saying, in this instance at least, that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Not just because he's God, although he's worthy of being crowned with glory and honor because he's God. But because, look at the last part of verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So he's crowned with glory and honor because of what he does on the cross. Because he dies the death that we should have died. He bears the punishment that should have been his people's. He he, he extinguishes it. He removes the punishment for sin. He takes the punishment. He, he takes God's justice on the cross. That's the heart of the Christian message. That Jesus has suffered in our place for our sin. Has absorbed, satisfied, extinguished, removed God's justice, God's wrath, God's punishment. And turned it into God's favor for his people. And do you see what the author is saying here? He's saying that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor.
because of that. Now, this is something that comes up throughout Hebrews. And, and when we say this, it feels, it almost feels like we're, like we're coming up to the edge, like we're going to say something wrong about Jesus. But I, I think this is right because a couple reasons, because, well, I read it from a bunch of people in some commentaries that are a lot smarter than me, so that gives me some, some confidence. But I want you to notice that a theme that runs through Hebrews is that part of the basis of the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is worthy for two reasons. One, he's worthy because he is God. He's God the Son, who he is. He's eternal. That's the, that's the beginning. Remember what we, we talked about in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 1. It starts off with that. It says that he is the radiance, verse 3, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's the glory of God, the Son, in his co-eternal, no beginning, no end existence with God. He's the creator of the universe. He's equal with God the Father, God the Spirit. We have this eternal triune God that just because of who he is, is worthy of praise. That's the first line of argumentation in Hebrews about Jesus being worthy of glory. But the second is, is that he's not just worthy because of who he is as God, but because of what he's actually done. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at, look at verse 4. So right preceding verse 4 is what I just read there. He, meaning Jesus, God the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means he's God. And he's worthy of being God. He's he's worthy of praise because he is God. And then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen to verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now verse 4, we got to think about the tension there. Verse 3 has just told us that he's God, he's eternally God, he's the creator, he's worthy of our, of our worship, but verse 4 says that he's actually become something. So how can God become anything? See, he's making a distinction between who Jesus is and what he's actually done in his incarnation. It's picked up again in, in, in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 10 that we'll start off with next week. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, so I think that's speaking of God the Father, listen to this, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you see, friends, I need you to see this. The the point the writer of Hebrews is making is that Jesus actually had to do something and the basis of his crowning with glory and honor, at least in verse 9, is not merely just because of who he intrinsically is as God the Son, but because he's what he's actually done in time on the cross. And the language that Hebrews chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 uses about Jesus almost feels like it's approaching heresy, except for it's in the Bible. Because how can Jesus be made anything? How can he be made perfect? Jesus can't be made perfect. He already is perfect. 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. There's another one of these head-scratching verses. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. The same logic. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How does Jesus, the eternal God, the Son, creator of all things, how can he learn anything? Well, that's the logic here. He became He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay, you're like, Brad, this is confusing. What are you talking about? Wrap this up and land this plane for me. Okay, but I want you to see this, friends. Don't, don't, this is, this is a deep truth, but friends, this is a clear truth. This is a clear truth. You can understand this. And you will be helped if you understand this. Why is this important? That Jesus is, in a dual sense, worthy of being crowned with glory and honor just because of who he is. But also because of the logic of verse 9. Because of what he's done. Because of his suffering of death. I think this is important because of the logic that Hebrews gives us in itself. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore... He, you know, I I don't like reading verses that I'm going to preach on next week because I'm giving you everything next week. So come back next week, but let's look at verse 17. I want you to see this. See this logic. Therefore, he, meaning the son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in other words, he had to become, he had to actually accomplish death on the cross so that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest to us so that we would know him, so that we would identify with him, or better said, that he would identify with us so that we could come to him. Hebrews chapter 4, the same logic spelled out more. Hebrews 4, verse 14 and following. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, meaning he's come down. He's been made a little lower than the angels. He's he's become like us. He's He's been made flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we, listen to this logic, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's become like us. So there's the heart of the logic. You have a Jesus, you have a Savior, you have a God who is not on the top of the mountain saying, ascend to me. That's religion. It says, come to me, climb the hill. And if you can climb the hill in your own strength, then maybe I'll meet you halfway. Or maybe you'll make it all the way. But the gospel offers opposite logic full of grace. It doesn't say ascend to me. It says I will descend to you. That's it. That's what he's saying. So then the last verse, let us then, what's the conclusion? Verse 16, let us then, because we have a high priest who's done this, because we have a high priest, we have a God who isn't just worthy of glory and honor because he's God as glorious and sufficient as that is. I'm not saying that's in any way insufficient. But he's so gracious, he's so good, that he's not just worthy of being crowned with glory and honor because he's God the creator, God the son, but because he's come down from the mountain for us. 
So what's the conclusion, verse 16? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, you have a God who's come to you so you can come to him. See that, and he's worthy of glory and honor, not just because of who he is, praise God for that, but because of what he has done. And what has he done? He suffered death. Now, back to Psalm 8. He suffered death. So, so man in Psalm 8, he was intended to have this kind of dominion, to have this kind of role in God's creation. But he's lost it. He's been relieved of his duty. And so how will he ever get back to that place? Because one man, the man, has come down and he has taken our place on the cross. This is what's going on on the cross. He's absorbing. His two things are happening on the cross. He is satisfying. He's satisfying the punishment for our sin. But he's not only doing that. That's the taking away of sin. But he's restoring the righteousness that mankind needs to represent God. And that's what's happening on the cross. So he is tasting death for us by the grace of God so that we someday would be able to reign with him forever and ever and ever. And that's 2 Timothy 2.12. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will also deny. He will also deny us. Friends, there's this glorious truth that we will reign with Christ forever. How will we do it? The only way we'll do it is by being in him, through him, by what he has done to restore us to this place in the Father's plan for his glory and our joy. I conclude with this. Two truths to just wrap this up. One, friends, understanding the words not yet, understanding this tension are foundational to maturity in Christ. Understanding that we live at the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it. We're like an impatient child that is asking our dad when we go on a road trip and we've only been away from the house for 15 minutes and it's a six-hour drive. Dad, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? No, (laughs) we're not there, but we will get there. In my experience, pastorally, And in view of my own life, Christians that get this, that see this, that we are living in this tension, in this ordained purpose of God, where he is reigning, but all things are not yet subject to him. Those that can see this, they are the healthiest, they are the most grounded, they are the happiest of Christians because they have a realistic experience. They're not trying to take too much of heaven and bring it into this life, but they're also not just giving up and saying, well, I'm going to hold on until heaven. There's this kind of balance. They, They see it and they embrace it and they live in this tension and they rest in the promises of God, but they strive to bring all that God has for them into this life, even as they know that they will never fully experience it until that life. Christians that see that tension are the happiest and the healthiest of Christians. They're the type of people that can sing that 
that song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his face, in other words, when I see that not everything is subjected to him, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking ground, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Boy, I messed that last verse up, but you know what I'm saying. Truth number two. We endure the not yet, this tension, this this strange tension that we're living in, friends. He's promised us all these things, but everything's not yet subjected to him. But we see Jesus. This truth number two is that we endure the not yet. This is verse nine. We endure the not yet by looking to Jesus. That's the point he wants to leave us with. Look to Jesus. He's the one that will, he's the one that will get you through. Look to him. Trust in him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we could take a turn in this, and I won't do it because we're out of time, and I want you to see this sister be baptized. I want you to revel in the gospel as you see it demonstrated in water baptism. We could take a lot of time spelling out, and it's worth worth doing this on some occasions, to talk about the practicality of what it looks like to look to Jesus. Like reading your Bible and being part of a church and being accountable to other Christians and doing life practically in the nitty-gritty. We could talk about all of that. And those are good and wonderful, practical things to do. But I want you to see this spiritual point, this something, this beautiful thing that the Spirit does, friends. And this is where I want to lift our eyes from this world that doesn't seem like it's under subjection to Jesus, but actually is. What's the antidote for that? He tells us to look to Jesus. But we see him looking unto Jesus. And friends, if you can see Jesus, this is, this is beautiful. If you can see Jesus, in the midst of whatever you may be going through that seems completely out of control, where you seem like you do not know how you're going to get out of the situation, how will God come through? You do not know. The call is to look to the one who has come down from the hill to you in your mess, who identifies with you, and who is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's come to you. So remember the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, draw near to him, grab a hold of him, embrace him, worship him, stare at him in his face. Don't let go. Hold on and see Jesus for all of his beauty because he's the one who has tasted death for you. He's removed God's wrath. He's turned it into favor. And now, no matter what you face, no matter what's coming your way, you're his, you're his, and he is yours, and you can rest in that. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Therefore, we can hold fast and draw near. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the writer, the preacher of Hebrews. May it settle on our hearts, Lord, anything, anything that's been good and right and holy, let it stick fast to our hearts that we would see Jesus. And even as we see 
our sister baptized today. May, may we be encouraged. May we see Jesus in her testimony. May, we, may our hearts be stirred and emboldened and refastened to you as we see the gospel portrayed. We pray this all in Jesus' name.